It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, well, well. It looks like all of Mark Zuckerberg's problems are going to be solved. Facebook is going to change its name. That's according to a report in The Verge. Apparently, this will be announced in about a week. I can't imagine what, you know, crappy, corporate, meaningless name the company is going to come up with. And what people are just going to say, well, you know, the, the old Facebook did a lot of bad things. But this new company, wowza. Gee, I mean, I think about other corporate name changes and how well they went. For example, when the Chicago Tribune decided to rebrand itself as Tronk, Tronk, uh, and Gannett. We don't think it's not Gannett anymore. At least part of it is not Gannett anymore. It is Tegna. I, I also don't understand the the meaningless, you know, syllables that are put together for this thing. But I don't know. Maybe this indicates the depth of Zuckerberg's desperation. It's like, Facebook, I, I've never heard of it. That was a thing I did in Harvard when I was in a dorm room. All right, moving along. Uh, the CEO, the co-CEO of Netflix, Ted Sarandos, is still fighting and playing defense over the uproar within his own company. This is one of the giant entertainment companies now, obviously, about a special by comedian Dave Chappelle, which uh, makes a lot of jokes about the LGBTQ community, trans people in particular. A lot of people find it offensive. Chappelle defends it as just comedy. So Serranos now says he screwed up with the way he defended the Chappelle special. I've been wondering how long he was going to have to stick to the, you know, this is what we do. We, we put, post all kinds of stuff, nothing to see here. Because the backlash is just getting louder, I guess you would say. So uh, Serranos did a couple of interviews. He um, told Variety, obviously I screwed up that internal communication. This was a memo he put out to the staff saying, well, you know, I know a lot of you are angry, disappointed, but there was no real world harm. First and foremost, he now says, I should have led with a lot more humanity, meaning I had a group of employees who were definitely feeling pain and hurt from a decision we made, and I think that needs to be acknowledged up front before you get to the nuts and bolts of anything. He's right about that. Also spoke to the Wall Street Journal, said there's no plans to pull the special, which is called The Closer, from the streaming service. He's not second-guessing that. And he said, look, there are going to be things that we do that you like, speaking of his employees, things that we do you might feel are harmful, but we're trying to entertain a world with varying tastes and varying sensibilities and varying beliefs. So he's sticking to his guns, but he's just like, well, I should have had a better bedside manner. This one is so wild, I don't even know what to do with it. It goes on and on, but I'll just give you the gist of it. So roughly a week ago, very experienced CNBC journalist named Hadley Gamble went and interviewed Vladimir Putin. And Putin kind of started this. This is horribly unfair to Gamble. Uh, she was being pretty aggressive in her questioning. And, and in, in trying to deflect her question, she says, well, you're, I guess you're just too beautiful to understand what I'm saying, which is just a, a ridiculous slap at a journalist who happens to be female. It's misogynistic. But since then, there is this whole Russian propaganda campaign aimed at Hadley Gamble. And a lot of these pro-Putin state outlets. I mean, almost every media outlet is pro-Putin when you're talking about Moscow. Um, And she's being described, Gamble's being described as part of an American special operation targeting Putin. In other words, she's so gorgeous, they sent her to unnerve Putin and try to get him off his game. Imagine that. And the worst of it is a guy who is just a notorious guy named McKislyoff 
notorious propagandist for the Kremlin, who's previously said, well, Russia is the only country that could turn the U.S. into radioactive ash. Uh, you try it, buddy. All right. He said that uh, Gamble acted shamelessly. She cast wistful glances at the Russian leader. She provocatively moved her legs. It was even a kind of a reference to Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. I don't have to elaborate on that. Uh, she intentionally lost weight in the anticipation of meeting Putin. Uh, everything from her spiky earrings and giant yellow ring down to her skin care and body language. I can't believe I'm reading this. Uh, she squeezed into a tight black dress, fluffed up her flowing hair, put on a pair of nude leg-lengthening Louboutin high-heeled pumps. <laughs> she elected to show up to meet the president without stockings and with exposed arms. I, it goes on and on and on. I, I, this is just the crudest, like, is this the level of Russian propaganda? to portray this woman as a, being part of like a honeypot trap. Maybe it's because the Russians do that with prostitutes. They think that everybody does it. Uh, but what an absolute outrage to describe an American journalist this way. All right. Oh, wait, there's more. She worked her body language to the f fullest, moving her legs, constantly playing with her hair, licking her lips, rolling out her tongue. I'm going to go look at the tape of this, I, I guarantee you she didn't do any of those things. Jeez. All right, story number one. Uh, it was last night. It was treated as big breaking news on certain news channels. As expected, uh, members of the House Select Committee on January 6th, all nine of them, it's Democrat-dominated with Liz Cheney, nine to zero, voting to unanimously support the idea of holding Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress. Criminal contempt, that is. The full House is expected to vote uh, on Thursday with regard to the former advisor uh, to Donald Trump, former White House official, now back in Trump's inner circle. And that means it will be referred to the Department of Justice. Uh, it's a misdemeanor cr criminal offense. It can lead up to one year in prison and a fine of up to $100,000. Chairman Benny Thompson saying, we believe Mr. Bannon has information relevant to our probe and we'll use the tools at our disposal to get that information. Liz Cheney, she's the vice chair, picked by Nancy Pelosi, not by uh, Kevin McCarthy, says Bannon had substantial advanced knowledge of the plans for January 6th. He likely had an important role in formulating those plans. He was in the war room at the Willard Hotel, downtown D.C., where he met with Trump allies ahead of the actual January 6th protest that turned into a riot. He also appears to have uh, detailed knowledge regarding the president's efforts to sell millions of Americans the fraud that the election was stolen, says Congresswoman Cheney. So I don't know, uh, you know, this is likely to drag on in the courts if it is referred to DOJ. The Justice Department will have to decide whether this is a case it could, should, and would bring. And there's an article in the Washington Post, there's a paragraph in this that, that Gives me a tremendous feeling of deja vu. The last time a person was charged criminally with contempt of Congress was in 1983. It's during the Reagan administration. And it was a former EPA official, Rita Lavelle. And I covered that story. I mean, I covered that story day after day after day. There was this whole EPA scandal 
whether um, the agency under Ronald Reagan, whether the Environmental Protection Agency were being too soft on polluters and Superfund sites, and there were a lot of serious allegations. And Rita Lavelle was, was, was like the number three official at EPA, and she refused to go along with a subpoena from a Democratic-controlled subcommittee investigating her management right, regarding the Hazardous Waste Cleanup Fund, known as the Superfund. And she was indicted by a federal grand jury. That's how far it went. But the fact that you have to go back decades to find a previous example shows how rare this is. One other point, I have a whole column on this uh, on foxnews.com today about January 6th. I talked a little bit about a political article how the Democrats, Democratic, a Democratic campaign committee, tried to use it against certain Republican state lawmakers who either showed up at the Capitol riot or... Um, supported the idea of not certifying the Electoral College results showing Joe Biden the winner, and how it backfired. According to Politico's reporting, one person was quoted as saying, it gave the Republicans street cred. Remember, there's a whole lot of Republicans, according to the polls, that don't believe that Joe Biden won the election legitimately, and um, that were supportive of Donald Trump in saying it's all a big lie, the election was stolen, and that January 6th wasn't really that bad. Uh, the Atlantic now has a piece calling January 6th the new lost cause and comparing it to the Confederacy, where for generations in the South, and some of this was a matter of regional pride and heritage, you know, the people who, after all, mounted an armed rebellion against the United States of America over the issue of slavery were venerated as heroes. And, uh, you know, until really in recent years when some of the statues and flags started to come down of people like Robert E. Lee um, and people like Jefferson Davis and others. So according to the Atlantic, the new law's cause, like the old one, seeks to convert a shameless catastrophe into a celebration of the valor and honor of the culprits and portray those who attack the country as the true patriots. But lost causes have a pernicious tendency to be a lot less lost than we might hope. Just as neo-Confederate revisionism shaped racial violence and oppression after the war, that being the Civil War, Trump's new lost cause continues to pose a continuing peril to the hope of one nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Uh, talks about how Trump celebrates the woman who tragically lost her life, Ashley Babbitt, who was shot as she was trying to break into the House chamber with a bunch of other people. And the problem with turning people into martyrs, this is according to The Atlantic, and there were a lot of historical examples cited, is that they emphasize the valor of the people involved while whitewashing what they were doing. And, you know, this whole like, oh, it was just like a typical tourist visit, eh, it was a few crazy people, you know, you forget all the hours that we all watched. Police officers were attacked, injured, more than 100 cops were injured, the shouts of hang Mike Pence and all of that, the, 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 the threats against lawmakers and how bad, how much worse this might have been if it not been for a few uh, brave Capitol Police officers who diverted the crown from where uh, many of the lawmakers were hiding. All right, number two. Uh, I've known John King for a long time. John King uh, hosted CNN, a longtime correspondent, former AP reporter. Uh, he announced yesterday on the air that he is immunocompromised. And he said, I'm going to share a secret I've never shared before. I'm immunocompromised. I have multiple sclerosis. So I'm grateful you're all vaccinated, referring to the other CNN people on the set with him. 
I'm grateful my employer says all these amazing people on the floor who have been here the last 18 months while we've been doing this are vaccinated now that we have vaccines. King says, I worry about bringing it home to my 10-year-old son who can't get a vaccine because although the Biden administration, I guess, is announcing today how it's going to do it for kids 5 to 11, it's still the approval for that is still several weeks away. So John King, uh, you know, maybe his close friends and obviously family knew about this, but the rest of the world did not. So going public with um, the fact that he has MS. And, you know, I don't know what the stage is. I will say that this guy works really hard and it doesn't seem to have slowed him down one bit. Also yesterday, Fox News anchor and a friend of mine, Neil Cavuto, put out a statement saying he has COVID-19 and he used the occasion to urge people to get vaccinated. Because if you've been following Neil's career, he has been living with multiple sclerosis for many, many, many years. He's also a cancer survivor. He also has a heart condition. I mean, Neil is an incredible guy. He has managed to triumph over all of these medical problems um, to show up for work, to do his daily show. He's also you know, an executive uh, in terms of the business Fox uh, Business Network, where he, he has two shows. There. He actually has three shows. I'm underselling him. He's got the Daily uh, Your World, which airs at 4 p.m. Eastern on FNC. He's got a two-hour show on Fox Business Network that airs from noon to 2 Eastern. And then he's got a Saturday show that he now does live. So this guy works harder than almost anybody you know, despite the fact that he has a cope with these things. In this statement, Cavuto says, had I not been vaccinated... And with all my medical issues, this would be a far more dire situation. It's not because I did and I'm surviving this because I did. Um, So what's striking to me just a couple of days after we learned of the sad death of Colin Powell, which triggered a whole debate about vaccines, because initially, and there have been a lot of things said here that I just don't agree with in many quarters. Uh, initially, all we knew was that Colin Powell was vaccinated and he died from coronavirus. It was maybe an hour and a half or two hours later that his family put out the additional information, which should have been released in the beginning, that not only was he 84 years old, but that he had been battling cancer of the white blood cells and as well as Parkinson's. So he was extremely immunocompromised, proving that, you know, The vaccine is not a miracle drug. If you have all kinds of other medical issues, it can't necessarily protect you or protect you as well as it would be if you are relatively healthy. I mean, that's just a fact of medical science. So the whole debate over Colin Powell, uh, we have John King, you know, coming out in favor of vaccines and being grateful that his colleagues have it because he has MS. You have Neil Cavuto, who's been battling MS for a long time. Um, you have Dennis Prager, radio host, conservative radio host, uh, who has just gotten COVID-19. He says he's, he wanted to get it. He was constantly in close range with people, hugging people. He wanted to be exposed to COVID-19 because he didn't want to get the vaccine because he felt that getting the disease and then writing it out would be better. The immunity you get from having had COVID, he believes, is better than getting the shots. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that was his 
personal choice. And, you know, all the other people, including uh, Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving, who's been sidelined, losing half of his 30 million plus salary. So what's so striking to me here is, you know, because there hasn't really been a face to the vaccine crisis. Every once in a while we hear that somebody has died and they say they wish they'd gotten the shot and that becomes a big deal. The Washington State University football coach has now been fired. Uh, he had he was the highest paid guy in the state, $3 million salary, because he refused to get vaccinated. So people who are public figures, journalists, athletes, or other kinds of celebrities, when they either get COVID-19 or refuse to get the vaccine or do get the vaccine and it saves their life, um, they become the focal point of a lot of the coverage. And I totally understand that. But given the fact that there is this extremely polarizing debate where, you know, you have everybody from most public officials, President Biden, Anthony Fauci, by the way, including Donald Trump, who says you should get the vaccine. Donald Trump, whose administration developed the vaccine under Operation Warp Speed. But then you have all these other people, some of them are anti-vaxxers, some of them uh, just feel it's a matter of individual choice, and some of them, you know, talk about this is freedom and our freedom can't be taken away, uh, and this is like Nazi Germany, and whenever you try out the, uh, the German references, I think you're, it's, it's a whiff of desperation there. But I understand the argument, as I said on the podcast yesterday, people think it's a matter of individual choice. The problem is, it's not just a choice that affects you. It's a choice that affects the people around you, your family, your friends, and your neighbors, and your colleagues. And that's why we're making... But, you know, and then and then you get into the mandates. Well, the mandates are working. Bill de Blasio is going to announce today, all New York City municipal employees have got to get the shot or lose their jobs. You also have the mandate within the federal government. You also have the private company mandates. You have Greg Abbott in Texas saying there will be no corporate mandates, and you have... Um, uh, I think Southwest has backtracked a little bit. You certainly have American Airlines sticking with this program. You have Fox News, which takes the position that if you want to come to work or be in the field in a work setting, uh, you've got to get vaccinated or you have to be tested every day. That's the out. That's the alternative. And I think over 90% of Fox News employees, Fox News media employees, are now vaccinated. So that's where it stands. I'm just so struck by the fact that so many of these cases have come to into the limelight this week. Cavuto, King, Powell, and how it affects the debate. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, moving on to number three. <laughs> this political headline cracks me up. It just cracks me up because as I've been saying for months and months and months, the debate over these multi-trillion dollar spending bills is just like watching the grass grow. Politico. Dems edge closer to ditching disarray. <laughs> they haven't agreed on anything, but they could be ditching disarray. In fact, Chuck Schumer came out, I've got the quote here somewhere, he came out of a closed-door meeting, uh, Senate Majority Leader said, there's been universal agreement in that room that we have to come to an agreement, and we've got to get it done and want to get it done this week. He wants to get it this week. I happened to see a headline on TV that said, I read it really quickly. I said, Schumer, Dems have come to an agreement. But no, when I looked at it more carefully, Dems have come to an agreement that we have to have an agreement. So there does seem to be a little bit of progress. Uh, President Biden telling Democrats during a private meeting, you know, he's been having Manchin over in cinema and then some of the moderates. This is according to the Washington Post that he believes they can secure a new deal between $1.75 trillion and $1.9 trillion, far less than some of the party had sought. 
um, and still accomplish a lot of what they want to accomplish. Now, according to these early outlines, and nothing's been agreed to, it's going to change another 17 times, they'd still be able to do at least some expansion of Medicare, offer new benefits to seniors, introduce universal pre-kindergarten, and billions for climate change, although they can't do certain climate change things uh, because Joe Manchin doesn't like it, and he's from the coal-producing state, as you know, of West Virginia. New York Times says Biden told Democrats that the plan to provide two years of free community college will likely have to be thrown out of the package. Um, and a clean electricity program, this is the thing, to help rapidly replace coal and gas-fired power plants, that's going to be out or they're not going to get Joe Manchin's vote. Also, the, the uh, child tax credit, monthly payments to families with children. Well, I guess it's going to have to be trimmed maybe to one year. Uh, and that was really a, a key part of the Biden agenda. But here's the thing, and this is why I think they have so badly bungled this. First of all, I mean, for Biden to allow this to go on and on and on for months and months when he could have taken the win on the trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill and then seen what he could have got here. Just look, let's just say, remember, first of all, they made it about numbers. So the fact that the Biden bill was at $3.5 trillion, which is always ridiculously unrealistic in terms of what you can get through the Hill with this kind of majority. And Manchin saying he only wanted $1.5 trillion. Well, it does look like the final number will be much closer to what Joe Manchin wanted, whether it's $1.7, whether it gets up to $1.9. But the fact that we're talking about it that way, just think about this. Let's just say it's even the number Manchin wants, a complete cave by the progressives. They just get rolled. $1.5 trillion in new spending for all of these social and climate programs, plus over $1 trillion in new spending, uh, mostly new spending, for roads, bridges, broadband, ports, Amtrak, you name it. That's $2.5 trillion against an annual federal budget of $6 trillion. That is, I think, if you put it all together and you throw in the COVID relief bill, more money that's been spent since the Great Society under LBJ. It is a phenomenal amount of money, but because they overreached, because they reached for the stars, oh, it's got to be three and a half trillion, we will not accept a penny less. It will be portrayed as a setback, as a defeat. Biden, you know, as Biden had to salvage this, as opposed to, I mean, with that kind of spending, he could have done a victory dance. Now, it's not even over yet, but that's just what strikes me. They made it about the numbers. And by the way, Axios has a piece that's saying that Manchin is offering a deal to progressives. He'll, he'll vote for these social programs if they accept strict, strict income caps for those who get it. It's called means testing. We do it all the time. There's mean testing for Medicaid. There's no means testing for Social Security. You're a billionaire, you can still get Social Security. They wanted to have um, free community college for billionaires, for millionaires. What sense does it make if you're trying to help people in need or even struggling working families or even middle-class families to say that the kids of, you know, Elon Musk and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, can get federal benefits so they can go to a community college. It's just insane. Uh, but there's some talk about that. Meanwhile, just quickly, a bunch of uh, House Democrats are retiring. Three new retirements announced this week. This is going to hurt their chances even more of hanging on to their very thin majority. I mean, I think the chances of them doing that, especially when you're throwing gerrymandering, are not good. 
But when you consider, when you see uh, incumbents stepping down, in part because they fear they may be in the minority and they lose their chairmanships and so forth, that's a pretty clear signal. All right, number four. The New Yorker has a piece by Chris Hayes of MSNBC, and it's not uh, so much of a liberal conservative piece, and I disagree with Chris Hayes on a lot of stuff. But I do think he makes some good points in this piece. He talks about just how amazing the Internet is. Well, yeah, I know. Everybody knows that, right? But he talks about it in this way. Um, A not particularly industrious 14-year-old today can learn more about a person, a stranger, in a shorter amount of time than a team of KGB agents could have done 60 years ago. Uh, Who you know, where you've been, which TV shows you like and don't like, the gossip you pass along, your political opinions, your jokes, your feuds, your pets' names, your cousins. Hey, it's all because we post this stuff, right? But And it's basically about social media. But at the same time, he talks about this uh, Russian intelligence outfit using all of this stuff that's available to track down uh, suspects in the poisoning of the Russian defector. This is uh, Skripal with a nerve agent back in, nerve agent back in 2018. Uh, why? Because they posted pictures of their wedding and stuff like that. Uh, so here's some of the pieces. This is an extreme example of a common phenomenon. Someone happens upon a social media artifact with a tiny number of followers, sends it shooting like a firework into the internet where it burns very briefly in white-hot infamy. There are some who find the sudden attention thrilling and addictive. Uh, And there are others who don't want the attention. They try to delete the post or make it private, but it's too late. And so basically, his take, uh, Hayes' take is the era of mass fame is upon us. A clever TikTok video can end up with 40 million views. And this is just, there's been nothing like this in human history. People like it. People don't like it. They briefly become famous. They want to become famous. But a week later, they're not famous anymore because we're on to the next famous or infamous person and what they did or said or shouldn't have done or should have said. Uh, when you take a step back and look at it, it's pretty incredible compared to where we were 10 years ago. So I thought that was worth pointing out. And number five, I'm actually going to do another New Yorker piece, and this is very unusual for this podcast, of two pieces in the same magazine, but it's got a pretty interesting byline. And that byline is Paul McCartney. Now, as I've mentioned before, we're in the midst of a huge publicity push uh, for this Let It Be documentary that's going to be released uh, Thanksgiving, I think on Disney+. And Paul's out there doing interviews. Ringo's done some interviews. And... um, and it's fascinating. And the New Yorker editor, David Remnick, did a very in-depth piece based on an interview with McCartney, a series of interviews, and his own take on the Beatles. And everybody knows by now I'm a Beatles fanatic. So here's, this particular piece is just about one song, Eleanor Rigby. But in the course of writing this, McCartney says, and again, you know probably the origin story, but how, what an amazing series of coincidences it, it was that the Beatles even got together. They, all, they were four guys Teenagers living in Liverpool. And he, Paul met a guy who said, oh, you should meet my friend John. He's really into rock music the way you are. And so they met, he met John, and they kind of got along, and they played their guitars. John was part of a skiffle band called the Quarrymen. So a week later, Paul was riding around on his bike. I think he's like 14 at this time. He runs into another guy who played the washboard in the Quarrymen. Very important instrument, Paul says, in a skiffle band. Um, and they got to talking, and this guy says, John thinks I should join them. 
That was a very John thing to do, Paul says. Have someone else ask me so he wouldn't lose face if I said no. Uh, he said, John could be quite caustic and witty, but once you got to know him, he had this lovely, warm character. I was the opposite, pretty easygoing and friendly, but I could be tough when needed. And I often do wonder about the chances of the Beatles getting together. We were four guys, lived in this city in the north of England. We didn't know one another. Then we got to know one another, and we sounded pretty good together. He met George Harrison on a bus one day, and some George joined, and as you know, Ringo was the last to join. And we had that youthful drive to try to get good at this music thing, uh, all these small coincidences had to happen to make the Beatles happen. And it does feel like some kind of magic. And, and, and it's just true. I mean, without bumping into George on the bus, you wouldn't have had Harrison and the Beatles. You wouldn't even have had the Beatles. Anyway, back to Eleanor Rigby. Uh, originally, he had another person's name uh, in, in, in mind for the song. It's a wonderful song. But he realized he needed a new name. So he was with his girlfriend at the time, Jane Asher. She was playing at the Old Vic Theater. He's wandering around. He saw a shop sign that said Rigby. And I thought, that's it. It would be Rigby. So where does the Eleanor come from? Well, uh, he knew a woman named Eleanor who uh, was working someplace that he got to know her. So it became Eleanor Rigby. By the way, Paul took piano lessons three different times. He hated it because all they made the teachers made him play scales. But he had written the music for Eleanor Rigby the third time he was doing the piano lessons. And he played the music for Eleanor Rigby, which, as you know, is a very prominent piano part. I play the piano, so I'm really into this. And he wrote the song in Jane Asher's music room in the basement of 57 Wimpole Street, where I was living at the time. So he moved in with his girlfriend, I guess. I played Eleanor Rigby on the piano for the teacher before I had the words. Uh, and I don't remember her being all that impressed. Well, screw you, piano teacher. It ended up being one of the great Beatles songs of all time. And finally, he had uh, the original lyrics said, Father McCartney. But then it would be confusing. Was that his dad? So he, he literally looked in the phone book and picked out Father McKenzie for the lyrics. And finally, he says, you know, the opening lines, if you know the song, Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, lives in a dream. She said, he said, well, you know, it's a little strange. Does she mean that she was a cleaner, someone not invited to the wedding, and only viewing the celebrations from afar? Why would she be doing that? I wanted to make it more poignant than her just cleaning up afterwards. So it became more about someone who was lonely, someone not likely to have her own wedding, but only the dream of one. And then there's actually a written lyrics from a piece of scratch paper. Reproduced in the New Yorker. Ah, look at all the lonely people. I, I always, as somebody who's really into music, I'm just always fascinated by how, where did the song idea come from? How did the lyrics change? How was the music written? Uh, who wrote what part when you're talking about Lennon McCartney? So uh, it's a great piece by Paul. It's just, it's just fun. It's a lot of fun to read. Thank you for listening. As always, you can get this podcast on Apple iTunes, and I'll be back here tomorrow with more Buzz. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.